you to remain standing before our children go out for their classes together today. We're going to read together from the Bibles that are available in the pews. A couple of readings, maybe a little longer than usual, but uh, not too long. And I'd like you to find two pages, uh, page number 1106, and then just a few pages over from that, 1113. 1106 and 1113, and you'll notice as you do that 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 puts you close together in the Old and the New Testament, Malachi 3 and Matthew 3, but between them is a period of about 400 years. You know, today, today is the two is the day that in 1803, Jans Joseph Haydn was a very old man, an accomplished composer, was being helped into a concert hall in Austria to hear a magnificent performance of one of his top three of his 60 greatest compositions, and that was The Creation. And it was on this day in 1803 that he was assisted in to hear that magnificent presentation. And it is said that Mozart, who had had a strained relationship with him earlier, but revered him as a great master, met him in the concert hall and embraced him and with tears said, my master, my master. Well, when you think about John the Baptist, we'll be talking about later, it's that time seems distant to us when that happened in that concert hall in Austria almost 200 years ago. But think, the time between what we're reading on page 1106 <laughs> and what we're going to read on page 1113 is twice that long. It's 400 years. But what is notable is what Justin's song led us in. I thought it was so striking. I had no idea where I'm going. And that is the sixth verse of this first reading is where God says what that song we just sang says. I, the Lord, do not change. How many of you are glad today that he's the unchangeable and unchanging covenant-keeping God? Amen. So let's read together 1106, and that's Malachi 3. And we'll read the six verses of first six verses of Malachi 3. Read with me together. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Amen. Becky said hallelujah. How many of you would amen, Becky? Hallelujah. 
1113, page 1113, let's look at verse 8 of Matthew 3. We'll read verse 8 through 13. Let's read together. Matthew 3, verse 8 through 13. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today we thank you that to receive you, to respond to your authority in this moment, is one of the great door openers of our life. Even as much as we have known in the past of your purifying fire, Lord, we know that the immersion of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life promises the continuous purifying and confrontation of our soul that brings life, for it yields the fruit of repentance, a changed heart, a changed mind, a changed direction. Give us grace today to respond with anticipation and with joy and gratitude to your calling for heart, mind, and soul transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our guys and girls for Explorers and Pathfinders are going to their classes now, and um, we are so glad that you are here. Just before you're seated, reach out to some of you seated already, but let's reach out across the lake. I'm sorry about that. This is up and down here. It's not in the bulletin, by the way. So we're going to reach out and say hello to one another. God bless you. <laughs> How good it is. Hey, Jim, God bless you. Hey. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we thank you so much for sharing in this time together to greet and to encourage. <laughs> friends, uh, <laughs> you are among friends. And have you, all, have you noticed that we all, every one of us, finds a time in our life where we're confronted with unpleasant truths? It's often called inconvenient truths. 
The best tweet I've seen lately, I'm not a, a lot to do the tweeting, but I read a lot in it because I find resources. And I, I read this tweet this week from a fairly young cardiologist. He's probably in his late 30s, relatively young in that field, and tweeted out that I have had the honor and the responsibility of examining about 1,500 hearts. But he said, the one that I could never diagnose is my own. I like that tweet because it reflects precisely what Malachi and Matthew give us in a composite picture here. As I said, when we read these two passages, Malachi 3, Matthew 3, that there are four centuries between these great declarations of God. And that highlights for us something we're going to look at as we back up a bit here and look at the um, connection with the covenant-keeping nature of God. As we saw two weeks ago, we looked at the covenant journey where at the Mount Sinai in the wilderness, God used the wilderness wanderings, an accented wilderness, wilderness, wilderness there in Exodus 19 to show that God had a purpose in the wilderness aspect of the journeys of the children of Israel. And part of that formative purpose was that he would meet them at the place of barrenness where even the landscape itself demonstrated visually what the Bible tells us is true of our souls. And that is left to ourselves. We're barren of the kind of life that we most need and yearn for and desire. Oh yeah, there's biological life. There's actually, in the New Testament, there are three different Greek words for life. There is the word bios, not used as often, but it is the Greek term in that era. Bios, from which we get the word, obviously, biology. And that is the study of the, of the actual physiological existence of, of, of the human body, if we're speaking of humans, or any existence of any creature. Biology. Then the second word for life in the New Testament is the word suke, starting with a P, silent P, and that's the word from which we get the word, the modern word, psychology, that is the study of the soul, and in the New Testament sense of that, it meant mind, will, and emotions. And then there's another kind of life that Jesus is used in the sayings of the Lord Jesus about the life from God that he came to bring. Classic example, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief came to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I am come, help me out with that one, that they might have life and have it more abundantly, super abounding life. And that word, zoe, Z-O and E. I, if we transliterate it to English, Zoe, has a reference in the New Testament, Gospel of John, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Revelation, to the God quality of life, something that's indefinable for us in some sense, and yet is reflected by what Jesus said to Martha and Mary when he stood at a cold, barren, bleak, tragedy-wrapped tomb with friends and loved ones of Lazarus weeping and Jesus himself weeping with them, feeling 
their acute loss, but then demonstrating the zoe, the life of God, he said to the dead man, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man arose, and he said, unwrap him, loose him, and let him go. Visually demonstrating this quality of life from God. So when we come to Malachi 3, we hear God referring to the coming of two individuals. Look in Malachi 3 in your Bible and think about it this way. that We have the Lord saying, I will send my messenger. And then another individual, who is he talking about? Who will prepare the way before me. And then when you read that third verse, as we read in our time of reading aloud together, you see the description of how God will come. That is, he will arrive in a manner that is confrontational. It is, it is bringing, even as his saving power is coming upon the scene, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God that we, that we saw at Sinai, in the covenant journey, brings a confrontation to all human hearts that verse 3 describes as the purifying of a refiner of silver and gold who at a crucible would allow the, the fires to be so intense that the dross of those precious metals would rise to the top and the purifier, usually with a ladle, a long-handled instrument would scrape off the dross and then the fire intensely would increase the intensity of the heat and then he would continue to ladle off the dross until the sheen of that precious metal is seen as reflecting the face of the refiner in the precious molten metal. So the confrontation is real. Think of it like this. God says... 400 years before the coming of John the Baptist, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, clearly identifying the coming Messiah as God himself coming to deliver us. Now, it's for this reason in this series as we think about the covenant-keeping nature of God, we've, we've had a kind of a theme verse, and I invite you to say this one aloud with me together again today because it, it, it is a banner over why we're talking about covenant, covenant keeping God, the covenant journey, and last week the certainty of the covenant, and then how this covenant confronts us because we so need the confrontation of God's covenant of grace. Read aloud with me together from Titus 2, together 4. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's a banner over these weeks until we meet at the Lord's table on Good Friday, where I invite you to come praying that our hearts be responsive to the timely work of the Holy Spirit to help us see anew and afresh in the simplicity of the elements, in the simplicity of an unadorned cross, that we understand Jesus Messiah, Lamb of God, takes upon himself the entire weight of the sin of the world so that God in Christ could make him the one who knew no sin 
to become the sin offering for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For that to happen, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God sends a messenger to bring a clear, unmistakable confrontation to every heart that we need again and again to become aware of the gap between who we are in our natural selves and the reality of the grace and the life, that God quality of life that he promises us. And it is for that reason that as we looked at this truth of the covenant journey and the certainty of the covenant, the certainty is anchored in that word redeem that we talked about last week. And we've just touched the surface of that because we want to get into a different aspect of that on, uh, uh, on the evening of Good Friday. But we see it here where the Bible speaks of it as being rescued. Again, aloud together, let's read from Colossians 1.13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. That is something no human could ever concoct or manufacture. Christ alone can do. And all of these images of the Old Testament that we saw are like shadows. They're foreshadowings. They're, they're, they're types. T-Y-P-E is a great word, but not as well understood in our culture. The word type is used in the book of Hebrews to refer to something by which God made an indelible imprint upon history for which all of the purpose of the covenant was demonstrated, but it pointed to a greater reality far in the future. Now, I hear the word type, and I always think of when I was learning to type, literally as a high schooler, that's back in the days of, how many of you remember? Smith Corona typewriters, the old kind, uh, before you plugged into the wall, uh, the, the kind with the little arm on it. And I learned to type on those old uh, mechanical typewriters. I remember it distinctly. And the type, the little typeface on the end of one of those uh, hammers, think of the D or the E or whatever, that was that is a good picture of what the Bible means when it speaks of a type. So we see, for example, that the Passover lamb that was placed at the um, doorpost of every family where the father of a family would, would uh, execute the lamb for Passover. And the blood of the Paschal lamb would be sprinkled upon the doorpost of every home. That's a type of the redeeming, of the permanent redeeming power of the Lord Jesus. In the Passover type, it had to be repeated every year for the symbolism to carry on through the generations. But it pointed to what John the Baptist was sent to tell us. That when Jesus walked down to that Jordan River bank, as we just read in Matthew 3, and he came himself voluntarily, the sinless one, the one who needed no confrontation. But to submit to the baptism of John as a demonstration of him fully identifying himself with all humanity and coming under the very water that John, also a type, the water being a type of the future washing of the soul. So in that redemption, we saw that the type in Sinai, as we looked at it, there were four aspects, and very quickly we saw last week in the redeeming 
promise that God gave them in delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, there was a rescue from deadly peril. He said, I took you here to Sinai, and I carried you like an eagle would carry its young. I rescued you from the tyranny of the Pharaoh. The adversary was vanquished. El Shaddai, the Almighty God. The very term that is, that is used in the book of Malachi eight times, the Lord Almighty says, the Lord Almighty says, he's promising and preparing a people for a confrontation that would be in, indispensable, that they would all need. And it's a picture of the coming work of the Holy Spirit who graciously, powerfully convicts us of sin and brings it to our awareness how the magnitude of what Christ has done in redemption and then freshly applies it like the blood sprinkled on the doorpost of a heart and makes us know what that cardiologist said. I've examined 1,500 hearts and I can't diagnose my own. He was acknowledging exactly what the gospel tells us. None of us are capable of accurately diagnosing our own heart. We need the searching work of the Holy Spirit. And so the fourth part of that redemptive plan that we saw is that God was speaking at Sinai about a priestly redeemed people. And from that moment, for the next roughly 1,800 years, from Leviticus to Malachi, this was a continuous covenant for a distinct people. God had said, I've come, I'm coming for a people. That people starts with the individual heart. So he gave them this type. As I said, a type would be like the exact imprint upon history, the exact imprint, uh, just as surely as a, as a typewriter hammer would, would tap the letter D on a piece of paper, that God hammered into history a type, a visual representation in the tabernacle of the book of Exodus. The, in fact, if you think about it like this, when you open your book of Exodus in your Bible, and you could start at verse chapter 25 and go all the way through chapter 40 of Exodus, 16 chapters that are full of these types. Now, some of them seem obscure to us today because we're not accustomed to reading that level of detail about the fabrics in the tabernacle, the furniture in the tabernacle, the bronze laver, the bronze altar, the candlestick, the, the curtains between the holy place and the holiest of all. The, mercy, the, the, the gold mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. But all of them had significance in pointing to aspects of how the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, would come the perfect God-man in the gold of his eternal deity. But in, within the acacia wood that they used in the tabernacle representing his sinless humanity and the gold and the humanity the deity and the humanity together in one being, in one person. This is why Malachi chapter 3 is worded that in the first verse. I will send my messenger before me. Then you get to that second verse, the first verse, and you read him saying, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Notice that if your Bible's still open to Malachi 1, notice it's very striking that in one verse, God uses the first person singular plural, per, pronoun about himself, and in the very same sentence, the third person pronoun about Messiah, the coming Jesus. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. So when God gave to Moses these commands in that tabernacle full of these types and shadows of the coming Messiah, he put a banner over it in Leviticus 19, verse 2, in describing why it was so important. We might ask that question, why would it be that God would have types and shadows and symbols all through those centuries to point to the coming of Messiah? And one of many reasons, one of many reasons has to be that in the perfect plan of God, those things that we need to know about Jesus, we would not have been able to grasp had it not been visually illustrated for us. In fact, you could surmise that in all of eternity, loved ones have just gone to be with the Lord in heaven that we cherish. One of the wonders that, we, that brings solace to our souls in the loss of sweet friends and great, great companions in life is that in some way we can't understand that in eternity, in, in the presence of the Lord Jesus, that the fullness, the magnitude of what Christ himself has done and who he is becomes so visually real. So God gives us these ways of seeing, and he said through Moses, speak to all the congregation and say to them, you shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy. Now, if somebody was tempted to think, now, Pastor, I know you're reading Old Testament now, true. If somebody was tempted to think there, well, that's old and that's not relevant to me now because I'm in the realm of grace. So a concern about the truth of real holiness doesn't really matter to me. Nobody here, I think, would say that. But there is an attitude that many Christians have expressed. I sat across the table at a little coffee shop one day a few years ago with someone having a conversation. And the entire conversation revolved unexpectedly around a view this person held of the Bible that basically said it literally, literally does not matter what you do or how you, how you uh, walk, what is actively happening in your life as long as you've accepted Jesus everything else is irrelevant and uh, we spent quite a bit of time interacting over scripture and me trying to say gently without our voices rising too high in the Starbucks there uh, about what it what it really means to follow Christ and what I began to realize I walked away from that thinking wow I know I didn't know that people really believe that they do it's in in, in an earlier time scholars called that license uh, as opposed uh, to legalism. It's the far opposite extreme of, of legalism, which, is an also, which also is an error. Frankly, legalism isn't generally the problem in our culture. It's much more on the licensed side. So how do you get squarely, how do you get in the genuine middle, how do you understand what grace really means? Grace purifying the heart in ways none of us could ever, ever do. The doctor said, I can't diagnose my heart. How many of you would agree with that? I can't diagnose my own heart. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, no one can accurately diagnose his own soul. But what does the Holy Spirit do? He brings confrontation. So this also was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. There was a prophetic urgency for this priestly people. Now remember that when, when God spoke that to Moses, there was a tribe that was exclusively devoted to the priesthood, right? The Levites. That was their job. But at Mount Sinai, God did not say, 
you're a peculiar treasure unto me, and I want the Levites to be the priestly ones among you. No, he said, you're a peculiar treasure unto me, a very special treasured possession, and I am calling you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we can see that all the way back at that covenant marker, God was establishing a pattern that all of the people, all the people, would be made holy. Now, this very sentence that we see from Leviticus is repeated in 1 Peter chapter 1. We won't turn there, but you might want to look it up. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 19, Peter, at the beginning of his epistle to the churches of believers scattered all throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and the regions of Bithynia, Peter says, just as God said to them at the tabernacle, you shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Peter explains in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 19, this is how God will make that real. That you will be redeemed, not with corruptible things like silver and gold from the empty way of life you received from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we should never say, no, that's all Old Testament. No, that's Old and New Testament. The kicker is that it can't be done by human power. And this is why the confrontation from Malachi to Matthew, the confrontation promised, the confrontation delivered in John the Baptist. In fact, it explains to us a question, an answer that many of us have wondered. Why was John the Baptist such a significant figure in the New Testament? Because he fulfilled that role of the prophetic urgency of Almighty God, bringing clearly both to the nation and to every individual heart that this golden word repent would be inscribed in the very fleshly tables of the hearts of the redeemed. How do, how, what in the world would that mean? Repent simply means, would you write it down? Maybe if it's not something you've thought about in a long time, just write this simple definition down. The word repent we hear it sometimes through ears that grew up in certain traditions, and we may think of it as penance, and that's a mistake. Repentance is not penance. Would you say that with me? Repentance is not penance. They have nothing in common. Penance is a false concept of human beings trying to pay for what they've done. And, and the scripture makes it clear no payment would ever be adequate for our sin. It's why Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin, and help me with that one, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, help me with it, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So can we say it again? Repentance is not penance. Can you say it? Repentance is not penance. Now, I want to give you another negative before we give the definition. Repentance is not remorse. Would you say it with me? Repentance is not remorse. A person could be weeping bitter tears of remorsefulness, coming to an altar, drowning an altar with tears, and yet still have a hardened, rebellious, completely anti-God heart. No, no. Repentance in the Bible simply means a change of mind. But it's not just the mind that we think of thinking. 
the New Testament word for mind, N-O-U-S, means the mind, the will, and the emotions. Repent means to respond to God's confrontation of our soul, to respond willingly and say, Lord, change my heart, my soul, my mind. It is a change of mind leading to a change of direction. And my favorite definition of all time is a definition that Dr. Donald Joy ascribed to the word repentance, and it means coming home to the truth. Now, it's stated in different words. The literal Greek means turning around. Could you say with me, repentance is turning around? Repentance is turning around. It's a change of mind. It's coming home to the truth. So now when we think of it like that, then we understand why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 that God in his mercy, loving kindness, draws us to repentance. And it is why we hear John the Baptist appearing as a voice, crying in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, all through the Old Testament, there was this prophetic urgency for a priestly people. And the watchmen, the prophets were referred to as watchmen. And I love this summary verse in Jeremiah 31. The watchmen will cry out. Say it with me. Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Now, again, those are symbols. Zion would reflect going, what Dr. Joy said, going home to the truth. Zion would reflect going to God in the splendor of the holy place where he dwells. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus does for us. But here's the problem and the reason why that gap of 400 years between the uh, prophecy of Malachi and the appearance of John the Baptist. In all of the great span of history, here's a quick thumbnail sketch of what happened. The kingdom of priests was called for way back there where we saw that at Mount Sinai. And God sent prophetic warnings through the centuries. And yet, what did this nation, what did this people do corporately who were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Well, they broke the egg. <laughs> they, 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 they consistently, over and over and over again, time and time again. And then if you'd open your Bible in Malachi, just notice, I want you to see just a, cl a quick glimpse in the context of Malachi of why this became the background for the coming of John the Baptist. And would you look in Malachi um, chapter, uh, chapter 1, where the, there is a conversation that happens between the very bored and very listless and very self-satisfied worshipers you couldn't even call them worshipers, but they were still attending service in the synagogues. And the Bible says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But then if you just look up here and read this part together, what is God saying to people who disregard the holy things? They think, they actually think, as it says in the text, that when they come to a gathering for the glory of God, it's a burden. It's a hassle. It interrupts my schedule. It takes me away from my entertainment. Huh. And then he says, God says it like this. And again, I'll ask you to read it from the screen. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, 
Where is my reverence? Would you read it with me? Says the Lord to you who despise my name, yet you say, how have we despised you? I count eight different questions the people ask in the book of Malachi like this, defiant questions. They ask, how is it that we have disregarded you? What do you mean by that, God? It's, they're incredulous that God would confront them. They can't believe they're being confronted by God. And today, in our culture, sadly, friends, I have to admit it, in our Christian culture today, we have a mentality, we have an idea, rampant among Christians today, that God never confronts us. He just lovingly, lovingly, wonderfully loves us all over and just absolutely is passionately in love with us. And he's dying for our attention and he's begging us to please come and show a little bit of interest in God. And when we do, he says, oh, it's just so wonderful. She's looking at me again. That's the mentality we've gotten in our culture today about God. The relationship of a Christian to God, his or her heavenly father, is that somehow I'm doing God a favor if I give him a little bit of my time. My, if I deep reach into my pocket and put a, an offering toward the kingdom, uh, I'm just somehow... Well, you should be glad I'm here, God. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's all out of phase. And the book of Malachi pictures it. And of course, the beauty of the contrast I'm giving you here is that when you discover grace, you realize how awesome it is that God is bringing us his promise because you hear him saying, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Here it is. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. When Jesus was promised there in that third chapter of Malachi, it was nothing less than God bringing the full power of that covenant that we talked about last week into the hearts and the lives of his people. And in fact, what he's portraying is Malachi 3, verse 3, again, if you look at it, that he will sit as a purifier of silver. And look at the fourth verse as well. It says that the sons of Levi, in verse 3, will be purified like gold and silver. Why? Look at Malachi 3, 3 and think about it. Because, again, it's a type of the coming believer. It's a type of the child of God. Sons of Levi here is referring in the future to you and me. Sons and daughters of the living God called to have priestly ministry of worshiping our Savior with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how does Malachi 3.3 end? God is going to bring that purification. Why? So that they may offer unto him an offering in righteousness. Verse 4, then, everybody shout out, then. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And then, of course, verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. So God is saying the effect of this coming messenger, the effect of the coming 
covenant-keeping Messiah is that his sacrificial atoning death will be like a refiner's fire purging the gold and the silver in a crucible. Now flip on over to Matthew 3, and then we'll see as we finish this how Matthew's calling, uh, uh, John the Baptist's calling, would then, would then bring this into focus. You see, the Bible says many things about John the Baptist, and taken together, and I've just tried to quickly group them because there's, it's a wonderful disparate picture, but I'm just giving you six quickly of the things that the New Testament tells us about John the Baptist. But the key phrase is Luke 1.17, where God said to Zacharias, when, he was, when John was not even yet in Elizabeth's womb, but that God was about to perform a mighty miracle and give them a baby in their old age. So this is over nine months before John the Baptist's birth, but God says to Zacharias, his natural father, who through a miracle became a father, he says, he will go before the Lord as a forerunner, that he might make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Would you read that phrase aloud with me? A people prepared for the Lord. What was he going to be? First, a joy and a delight to Zacharias and Elizabeth. A joy and a delight, John the Baptist was. He was to be great in the sight of God. He was a voice in the wilderness. He's forerunner of the Messiah. Gospel of John opens with the words in the fifth verse. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That light, Messiah, was the true light, which lights every man who comes into the world. John the Baptist was like the guy who walks in and turns the lights on for God's royal arrival to begin. That is, he has what would be a humble role in comparison to his Savior, and yet in the span of history, he becomes called the greatest prophet. And then, of course, John himself uses another illustration. That's number six. John was confronted by the Pharisees who said, why are you, why are you so passionate about seeing people get baptized in water and speaking of this promised one, this Lamb of God? He said, well, I'm like the bridegroom, but like the best man at the wedding. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. We would call it a best man today. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. When the, when the bride is standing fully in her bridal gown, waiting, coming toward her bridegroom, the best man steps out of the way. He hands the ring off, and he fades. And now the focus is on the bride and the bridegroom. So John the Baptist used that illustration to say, my role is to confront it's to bring to the awakening of all what the prophet had said would happen through John the Baptist, and that is, my messenger will prepare the way. The message, the very brilliant paraphrase of Old and New Testament by Dr. Eugene Peterson renders this phrase in Isaiah 40 this way, thunder in the desert, prepare for God's arrival. That's John the Baptist. He's thunder in the desert. And the thunder here clearly shows us 
that a confrontation had to happen that would capture the heart. Now, one, one writer, right around the turn of the last century, so I'm reaching back 125 years, and I find it so fascinating. In digging into these great writers, explaining what John the Baptist did, I found this one particularly compelling. And that is, when John the Baptist, growing up in a priest family, remember his father was a priest, if John the Baptist had followed Zechariah's in the family line, by the age of 20, he could have gone to the priesthood and been trained for the priestly service in the temple. But the unique call of God upon John the Baptist from even before he was born and the witness of God burning in his soul separated John from the priestly class and sent him way out into the wilderness regions. We're just like God had covenanted with Israel in the wilderness. Now, God sends his covenant promise and prepares the way through a man shaped in the wilderness. A great writer 125 years ago summarized what John was passionate about in this way. The fragments of the law's broken tables strewed the land, even the courts of the temple itself. And men and women were everywhere tripping over the broken pieces of the law. You could picture the tablets that broke from Moses' hands tumbling down Sinai. And now humans are tripping over the broken pieces of the tablets. Does that not describe our culture in 2022? It is as if the Christian community acts like those broken tablets are meaningless. But no, John hears the thunder of God calling his people back to holiness. So John goes out into the desert, somewhat like that goat that was released in the Day of Atonement, the goat fleeing into the wilderness, carrying upon itself the burden, the weight, the magnitude of the guilt of a whole nation. It's as if John the Baptist becomes that goat in the wilderness. The imagery of this writer expresses it. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and as if John was bearing deep within his heart the sins of his nation, sins which are yet unrepented and holding captive souls in their grip. And when he comes out of that wilderness preparation like a thundering prophet, what happens? Well, read it with me. They went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan. And what were they doing? Confessing their sins. Again, when we think of this, that's why it's good to know. Repentance is not penance. It's not, you can never pay for anything. Repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not just regretting or feeling sorry. No, repentance is a radical reshaping of heart, mind, soul in a new direction. And the confrontation of the covenant came for that reason. It is almost as if in the span of history, what John the Baptist was doing at the Jordan River was like that labor, that, that bronze wash basin that every Israelite had to pass as they brought their sacrifice to the priest in both the daily rituals and the annual Yom Kippur. And what did they do? The priest washed in the laver. And they prepared their, their hands after 
going to the bronze altar, and they carried into the holy place the offerings of the people. John the Baptist becomes a living fulfillment of the labor, the washing of a people. No, somebody says, well, well, that water is not, was not in any way salvific. Of course it wasn't. It was a symbol of the coming washing that could only be done by the precious blood of Jesus. So when John comes to, Jesus comes to John and says, baptize me. John the Baptist is astonished. He's just pointed to the Messiah and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the Messiah comes and says, I must be submerged as well for it to be clear. What? That we might fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus is echoing exactly what the prophet Isaiah had said. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. And I love this because this is literally about the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. I have called you in righteousness. I have, I will give you as a covenant to the people, a light to the Gentiles. In other words, the covenant we've been talking about these three weeks is nothing other, nothing less than the living person of Jesus coming to you and me. And it was so significant that God wanted a forerunner. God wanted John the Baptist to be the one to bring it directly to every soul. The question of many in the crowd was, now what shall we do about this? And it's striking that every sin that was spoken of there are common everyday foibles of humanity. He didn't highlight the big, bad, ugly, grotesque sins. He highlighted the small jealousies, the grasping, the selfishness, the backstabbing, the, 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 the stinginess of the human soul. And in doing so, he was preparing the way to open the covenant life to each individual heart so that what? These fruits of righteousness could come forth. What a joy. What a blessing. Here is the conclusion. To be confronted, to be confronted by the merciful God is actually a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. Be glad when you are confronted. No, no, not, I'm not talking about reckless people nitpicking or fault-finding or domineering. I'm not talking about some culture where people are trying to control others. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, where he promises the Holy Spirit will cross your grain. The Holy Spirit will confront us. <laughs> and the beauty of it is, when the Holy Spirit confronts a redeemed, blood-bought, grace-empowered child of God, she says, he says, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Because in your mighty power, you've redeemed me to belong you that I can that I can bear fruit I want to ask as we pray that you might think just for a moment about that word repent what does it mean just as as the worship teams comes to lead us in a song could you think for a minute 
Repenting, then, becomes a mercy. Rather, rather than a burden, it actually becomes a mercy because in the power of his redeeming grace, Jesus has made it possible for you and me to say yes to every confrontation the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. You say, why, why can you say that, Pastor? Because you can say yes because you're in no fear. You're in no fear of, of failing or falling. Christ himself has promised that he will purify the sons of Levi as a refiner sits, a refiner of purifying gold and so sits by that crucible and completes that process of walking you into the fullness of a fruit-bearing life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you honor and praise. Just before we sing, I, I want to ask our eyes closed a moment more and just ask you to just lift one hand very briefly. If you would say, I want to let the Holy Spirit open my eyes to positive change in my life. And, and I'm opening my heart now to say yes to the Lord Jesus. If you would simply say, I want the kind of confrontation the Holy Spirit wants to bring into my life. Would you lift your hand? Lord, thank you for these hands. Thank you for the beauty of grace. Thank you for the beauty of transforming redemption. And Lord, make it vivid for every heart here today that saying yes to the crossing of my grain by the Holy Spirit is one of the life-liberating acts of faith that we can enjoy. Bring us to that table, Lord, on Good Friday in a way that is more open, more aware, more prepared in our hearts than maybe we've been in many, many prior gatherings around the table. Thank you, Lord, for the life-giving power of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.